Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and everything else. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who is in love with science. She is in love. You're going to get married to science. I am eventually. totally. I mean, I'm already it's married. Be but a heteronormative. I'm, but I can be wedding. married to more than I can be married to a person and a concept. And oh, I think, yeah. You know, science is a definitely. You know, science cleans up real good. Yeah, this is the future. It marrying is concepts for like, sure. Once they once they let us gay marry, we're going to start marrying ideological constructs. Oh, for sure. It's That's, gonna, <laughs> you know, there's just no stopping that. Train. This is the problem. Okay. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Pulp Fiction, not the movie from the 1990s, but the actual phenomenon of people publishing work on pulpy paper that was cheap in the early 20th century and what that kind of fiction has left to us as its legacy, where it came from. And also, we're super lucky to have with us one of the world experts on the history of Pulp Fiction. We have Jess Nevins, who has written encyclopedias related to Pulp Fiction. He's a librarian. He's a historian of pop culture. And he's a writer. So welcome to the show, Jess. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's great to be here. So I wanted to start out by asking you just what the heck is Pulp Fiction? We hear about it a lot in science fiction and fantasy as kind of the deep history of our genre. Is that accurate? What What does it really mean? And when, when did the term start getting used? The term came into use in the 39, 40, 41 set of years. There are actually two definitions. There's the really boring technical one, which is that a pulp fiction is fiction published in magazines which had wood, wood pulp paper and were a certain set of dimensions, something like six by nine or eight and a half by ten and a half, something like that. But more broadly, pulp fiction is fiction that takes a certain approach to the stories themselves. And if you indulge me, I've got a long definition here. Oh, yeah. No, we, mm-hmm. we're here to indulge you, Jess. Oh, great. Thank you. Pulp fiction, regardless of genre, has some easily defined characteristics. An emphasis on adventure and drama and an avoidance of the mimetic mundane, the privileging of plot over characterization, the use of dialogue and narration as the means for delivering information rather than displaying authorial style, the regular use and exploitation of the exotic, whether racial, sexual, socioeconomic, or geographic, simple emotions strongly expressed, the repeated use of common tropes, motifs, and plot devices to the point of rendering them cliched, the adherence to the real or perceived limits of specific genres with a concurrent lack of literary experimentation, and good always, always triumphing over evil. So the the latter long definition is, I think, the best way to look at what Pulp Fiction was historically. And when does it get started? You were saying that the term kind of came into vogue in the late 30s and early 40s, but a lot of the so-called golden age of pulps is before that, right? 
Right. The first pulp by sort of universal acclaim appeared in 1896. The year that there were finally more pulps published than there were dime novels was 1920. And it wasn't until 1953, 1955, where the pulps really began to die out for good. And so when you say more pulps are being published than dime novels, you just mean more kind of fictional writing appearing in these pulp magazines than there were, like, by volume or by mass or something. Well, more titles, I should say. Okay. Um, 1919, 1920 is really the tipping point where there were more authors submitting to the pulps than to the dime novels. There was more fiction being published in the pulps than in the dime novels. And the weight of popular culture was finally shifting from the dime novels to pulps. That's so interesting. So before 1896, there was still a lot of serialized adventure fiction, right? I mean, was it just in other forms or was it really not as much of a thing? We've had serialized fiction and fiction serials since the 1840s in the United States. We've had dime novels since 1860, and the impetus and the weight of popular serialized popular fiction was in the dime novels pretty much from 1860 to the end of the century and for a few years after that. So America sort of inherited the idea of serialized heroic fiction and fiction serials from the British, but we ran with it and made it our own. So what are some of the, you mentioned uh, in the sort of second part of your description of pulps, you mentioned that there were a bunch of tropes that get used and certain kinds of, I guess you could say, heightened realism. What are some of the main tropes that we see in early pulp fiction, like that kind of defined the genre, other than the fact that it's printed on pulp paper? The various tropes and motifs and dynamics really varied according to what genre the story was, what genre the pulp was. Sure. Um, it's fair to say what are now cliches appearing in everything from the romance pulps to the railway pulps to the sports pulps. You read them now and you can see how they were fresh then, but if you read them today, they're in a way they're pretty tired just because we've seen the happily ever after ending for the the star-crossed lovers so many times. We've seen the hard-boiled detective get worked over by the mob bosses bad guys, but come off the the asphalt to to slug the main bad guy in the jaw. I mean, we've seen all these all these cliches over and over, but really, in a lot of ways, the pulps were introducing them. And so it's kind of hard to nail down one trope or one cliche. But also, I think pulp is as much as as much the state of mind as the of the writer and the requirements of the editor as it is the content. So what roughly what percentage of the pulps were science fiction or fantasy or a horror? And did that change over time? Did it become more or less? I'd say as a roughly 3% of the pulps were science fiction or fantasy. It increased slightly at the high point of the pulse, which was 1939 or 1941, excuse me. You had, uh, I think it was up to about 8%, but it never got higher than that. We all love our science fiction genre, but in terms of the pulp industry, science fiction was very much a 
tertiary concern compared to romance pulps and westerns and detective pulps and adventure pulps. Interesting. And was it just about the printing press or was there some social economic kind of factor in the early 20th century that really supercharged the rise of the pulps? The various economic depressions of the 20th century before, during, and after the Great Depression had a lot to do with the demand for cheap entertainment that could be handed around to other people. We've all seen the pictures of the GIs handing out comic books. Well, they did that with the pulps as well. Uh, it was it was very important, both in the 19th century and the early 20th century, that a group of guys and groups of women as well, there'd be one pulp magazine which could be handed around to everybody so everybody could read it. What we've got now is essentially free TV, well, the pulps were as cheap as they could make them, just like the dime novels were as cheap as they could make them. It still cost a few bucks in modern prices, but it was there was a demand for it, and so people got their 25 cents or their dollar or whatever and, and paid for the pulp. It should be remembered that the people in the early 20th century didn't have nearly the options that we do for leisure. They were desperate for it. You know, they you've got radios coming along and providing this new world of entertainment. Well, the dime novels and the mainstream magazines and the pulps were filling that niche before, before radio came along. Uh, everybody wants something to kick back and relax with. Well, the pulps filled that need pretty much. And so I wonder if the some of the themes and the tropes we see in pulps, the really escapist themes, do you think that's also a response to the fact that they grow out of these economic depressions and war? Um, I've never been able to decide how much of the content of the pulps and the approach of the pulps is meeting a demand or creating one. Fair enough. That's always a good question. Right. People want cheap, relaxing entertainment that is unchallenging in certain ways. But when you condition the audience in the way that the dime novels did and the pulps did, that becomes what they expect of their entertainment. The better writers in the pulps, a lot of them were not as successful as someone like Seabury Quinn, who was a fancy horror writer back in the 30s and 40s, who cranked out dozens of really atrocious but extremely popular stories. Uh, Clark Ashton Smith, he did okay, and he was infinitely Seabury Quinn's superior, but nobody, everybody wanted Seabury Quinn, nobody wanted Clark Ashton Smith. We had sort of begun earlier to talk about some of the tropes in the sci-fi horror fantasy pulps. And so now that we've brought up Seabury Quinn, can you talk a little bit about some of the tropes that we might have started to see in those pulps back in the 20s that are now just something that we think of as just so tropey, it's just built into the genre? Sure. Space opera and more generally any story of science fictional exploration, exploitation, and conquest, that's right out of the pulps. White men romancing alien women with all the symbolism that's tied into that, that's right oh out God. of the pulps. <laughs> so you're saying green-skinned women started in the pulps, basically. <laughs> the, the, yeah. the Star Trek green-skinned women. All right. right. <laughs> well, and, and before that, you had uh, John Carter of Mars going to Mars and sure, romancing yeah. 
Dejah Thoris. Right. Uh, you had the threat of others. Alien invasions, ethnic and racial and sexual others, always very threatening. My favorite was science being spelled with an exclamation point and in all capitals. <laughs> Wait, so an exclamation point instead of the I or at the end of the word? At the end of the word. So science is actually Thomas Dolby style. Nice. Right. Scientists being two-fisted action scientists rather than people in lab coats. That seems accurate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you've got masculinity defined through violence and white heteropatriarchy. I think in this case, it's very much the ideology the, of the pulps, consciously or not on the part of the editors, sort of defining masculinity for the masses. So that's why scientists have to be like action heroes, because there was no trope of the heroic nerd quite yet. You can always find forerunners, but the pulps are where these these tropes really became reified. You had femininity defined th through modeling in fictional form, very retrograde social roles attitudes. And in general, the idea that the future was going to be like the present, only with spaceships and blasters and humanoid aliens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is kind of, it, sound, it feels like those tropes are still with us, you know, that we are still imagining that the future will be kind of just a version of the present, but with like really awesome phones or whatever. What were some of the pulp magazines that these stories were appearing in that we might know today? Uh, Astounding and Amazing were the two major ones. What's fascinating to me is that numerically the science fiction appearing in Astounding and Amazing was smaller than the total science fiction appearing outside of what we think of as the science fiction pulps. But everybody has managed to forget about the science fiction outside the science fiction pulps. So what we get today is sort of regurgitated Hugo Gernsback science fiction and John W. Campbell science fiction. But there was this whole alternate take on the genre that has been buried. And where was that alternate take appearing exactly? Railway pulps, sports pulps, the mainstream pulps, the mainstream magazines that they called the slicks because of the paper quality, airplane pulps. Science fiction is all over the place in the aughts and the tens and the twenties and thirties and forties. There was a recurring character in the railway pulps, a, a wacky inventor who's always trying to come up with new ways to make the trains run faster and safer than they always <laughs> So he only worked on trains. Right. Well, it was a it was a pulp about railway stories, so you know, he's he's doing what the editor required of him. I love that there's like a whole lost genre of railway pulps and railway science fiction. I I want there to be more railway science fiction. Like what is Definitely. the future of trains? Like we don't think about that enough. Right. There was really only one railway pulp, but it lasted until 1979, I think. 79? Oh, my God. Yeah. So you're saying this is what led to Snowpiercer, basically. Yeah. <laughs> that is modern-day railway pulp. It really is. God. Yeah. I was going to say, before we cut to a break and talk about modern-day pulp fiction, I wanted to talk about weird tales, which I think for people in science fiction today and people writing horror today, that is kind of the forerunner of a lot of the work that people are doing. Um, there's, in fact, a whole new subgenre called the new weird, which Anne and Jeff Vandermeer have really helped to popularize. 
this is, of course, the pulp magazine where H.P. Lovecraft was published and who also is like, I think, one of the few pulp writers whose name is really remembered today. Why do you think that people are so focused on weird tales and H.P. Lovecraft when, as you've already indicated, it would have been just this tiny piece of a percent of a percent of of the pulp that was being published? I think part of it is the history of what we might call the historiography of Lovecraft. So you've got Lovecraft, the keepers of the flame of Lovecraft at Arkham House in the 40s and then the 50s and then the big Lovecraft revival in the 70s. And so you've got this constant reprinting of Lovecraft where all these other authors just don't get reprinted or get reprinted in anthologies that nobody reads. And I think it's not so much Lovecraft's inherent quality, though there is some so much as just pure availability. One thing I'd compare it to is women writers of horror fiction in the 19th century. There were dozens of them, many, 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 both in the United States and in England. But nobody reads them now and nobody knows who who these writers are because the male anthologists focused on a limited number of male writers. So something like 70% of the writers of horror in the 19th century were women, but you'd never know it reading modern coverage, modern criticism, modern scholarship. It's the same way with the pulps. People focus on Lovecraft because he's easy to get a hold of, whereas Clark Ashton Smith is a lot harder to get a hold of, even though he's a superior writer to Lovecraft. Do you think there was something about what Lovecraft was writing, something about the tropes that he originated that really resonated with people like the publishers at Arkham House or people who kept him in print? Yeah, it, there's a certain mentality that really responds to Lovecraft's philosophy, that came out more negative than I really intended, but (laughs) (laughs) it's okay. I mean, you know, white supremacy is like a big American tradition and Lovecraft really participated in it. It's a hell of a drug. Yeah. And really the, the whole Lovecraft philosophy of, Oh, there is no God. There are just alien space monsters, (laughs) but really we know that. So we're superior to everyone who's deluded by religion, et cetera, et cetera. You fools. Yeah. (laughs) That has an appeal to a certain kind of science fiction and horror fan that more difficult horror and science fiction of the time maybe didn't. I'm losing fans just by saying this. I know people are probably turning off the podcast. (laughs) We're watching your follower count just like tick down. Yeah, all those like Lovecraft fans on Twitter. Right. I think a lot of it is attitude and they're responding to Lovecraft's attitude as a writer and the attitude of his stories as much as they are to the content. And I say this as someone who was reading Lovecraft hardcore in the, when I was a teenager, but I, I think what resonated with his readers was more attitude and imagination and ideas and and imagery than themes and characterization and all that other stuff that appears in stories by better writers. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about modern day reception of Pulp Fiction. (laughs) 
You know, Pulp Fiction obviously is everywhere, including a lot of superhero tropes are directly inherited from Pulp Fiction. Where do we most see the influence of Pulp Fiction continuing into the 21st century? I think we see it most in comics, but as you said, it's everywhere. Uh, Fast and the Furious is pure pulp. Nice. Star Wars extended universe novels are pure pulp. So many mystery series could have stepped out of the pulps, could have appeared in the pulps. Are procedurals pulp? I mean, like procedural TV shows? Yeah, like the CSI shows or... I'd say so. I think maybe the biggest difference between pulp and not pulp is aesthetic and artist intention. And with a very few exceptions, anything that's cranked out to meet a time limit is going to be more pulpish. Like, I wouldn't call Legion pulp, but I would call CSI pulp. Huh. And is that because the production values are higher on Legion or because it's more literary or what? I I think it's more literary. They're aiming for something higher than just getting weekly. There are certainly pulp writers who are trying to do something interesting and aesthetically worthy with their writing, but a lot of them were writing for pay, were writing to meet a deadline, were writing because the editor asked them to write a certain story or a certain plot. There's that whole famous thing where it's like, we have cover art and we want you to do a story that's based on this cover art. Right. And no myth, that happened. And they sold tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of copies. So they are clearly meeting a market need. What appears in the more respectable mainstream magazines is a bit more aesthetically and literarily worthy. I wanted to follow up by asking about a couple modern day stories that self-consciously fashion themselves as Pulp Fiction. So one is the movie Pulp Fiction. The other is the TV series True Detective. And both of those present themselves as being in the in the mode of, of pulp or in the mode of these like true detective stories that were kind of also popular during the pulp era. Do you think those are the inheritors of pulp? Because to me, they seem too literary to be actual pulp. I would agree. I think Pulp Fiction, the movie, was Tarantino trying to homage something that he imagined. I don't think he had any real experience with Pulp Fiction. I think he had experience with movies from the 30s and 20s and 40s and thought, well, the magazines must have been the print version of these movies, and so I'm just going to call it Pulp Fiction. I think that True Detective is a little too high-minded to be pure pulp. Uh, There was the Robert W. Chambers, King in Yellow, mm-hmm. influence in the first season. And so that that's outside the pulps. It's sort of pulpy or pulp-esque without being actual pulp. I think that was written written for better intentions than just making uh, making a quick quick buck. And so I'm not sure I'd call them pulp, either of them. And that's interesting, the idea that, you know, if you self-consciously try to homage pulp, but in a very literary, fancy way, it's not going to be the same thing. It's going to be something transform- transformative, I guess, right? Right. Although a few years ago, Michael Shaben wrote a book or serialized a novel in, I think it was the New York Times, and published it as The Gentleman of the Road. Mm-hmm. And that was 
very pulpy, but it was literary and intelligent. I call it half pulp at best, mm-hmm. but a, a very entertaining half pulp. Right. There have been, I think, especially 15 years ago, there was this generation of, of novelists who really wanted to pay homage to pulp. I think Jonathan Lethem comes to mind, too. And Michael Shaben put out that volume of thrilling wonder tales that were sort of pulp inspired, I think. I was going to ask, okay, so to some extent, comics kind of took over where the pulps left off, it feels like. And how do these tropes change when they go into comics? A lot of them become more juvenile just because the presumed readers for comics are kids and teenagers, whereas the presumed readers for the pulps were adults. So you've got a, you've got the spicy pulps, which are pretty drenched in sex, which superhero comics, which are most of the industry, superhero comics would never do anything close to spicy pulps, would ne- never do any horror. There was a subgenre of horror pulps that got as gory as they could, according to the limitations of the market at the time. Superhero comics are a lot more limited than that. As much as I love superhero comics, most of them are may aimed at kids with a sort of kid mentality. We can always name exceptions, but I think the tropes get in some ways dumbed down. And also those tropes that sort of present a counter narrative to patriarchy and white supremacy and sexism in the pulps sort of don't appear in the superhero comics, at least not through the first 50 years of superheroes. What are the tropes that counter white supremacy and, and patriarchy? Like, in, if you can name a couple that yeah, the comics left out. Yeah, give us some subversive tropes from the pulps. <laughs> okay. There are a surprising number of uh, protagonists of color in the pulps. You could say they're white and all, but name and personality, but I prefer to think of them as deliberately written so as to avoid every contemporary then contemporary stereotype. You've got the same thing with female protagonists. The pulps never tackled anyone on the quilt bag continuum, but there was a definite sense with some of these heroes that if the writers could have snuck it past the editors and the postal censors, they would have made gay and lesbian and trans characters. Hmm. Yeah, the pulps were in some of the pulps were very liminal in the way they straddle the requirements of genre and the requirements of non-white, non-hetero, non-male audiences. Uh, you've got in the westerns the cowboy romance pulps. It's influenced by the Virginian rather than by John Wayne. And if for those of you out there who don't know. Basically, The Virginian, published in 1903, was this landmark cowboy novel that in many ways created the cowboy novel genre, except that the main character, the narrator, is clearly in love with the cowboy and says, among other things, says, he gave her a look that if I had been in her shoes, he would have been able to do with me what he wanted. And this is a male narrator. The author deliberately wrote it that way. And so you've got these occasional stories where the cowboy protagonist is a lot more sympathetic and sensitive and progressive in modern terms than you do 
than really appears in superheroes for decades. I'm excited to know about the gay origins of the Western. Um, I wanted to just finish up by asking you whether you think that um, the new generation of self-published authors and people doing low-budget film or low-budget streaming, are those people inheriting the pulp tradition because they're they're writing for you know very little money and the whole point is just to get as much content out there as possible? I, I tend to think that your average low-budget filmmaker or self-publisher is... In a way, they're they're sort of transcending what the pulp authors did because so many of the pulp authors were just writing for the paycheck, writing to support themselves. Whereas mm-hmm. the filmmakers and the self-publishers, they're writing for their audiences, but they're also writing to satisfy themselves to achieve something artistically. And with most pulp authors, I don't think that. Yeah, that's really interesting. That makes sense. Yeah, writing for an audience is really different from writing for an editor who will give you a paycheck. Right. There are a bunch of authors who call themselves New Pulp, who self-publish stories and serials and novels. They want to be the new pulp writers, but I don't think they quite succeeded it because many of them are imitating hero pulps, which were not representative of the pulps at all. They will create knockoffs of Doc Savage and The Shadow and The Spider and Domino Lady. They're not really writing using the pulp approach. They're writing essentially superhero stories. There's a Mark Twain story about how his wife wanted him to stop cursing. So she one day recited back to him all the swears that he'd been saying. And he said, my dear, you have the notes, but not the music. That's sort of how I feel about new pulp writers. (laughs) That's That's interesting. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Um, Can you tell our audience where they can find your stuff? Sure. I've got a book coming up in January called The Horror Fiction of the 20th Century, which is going to be, it's from Prager, who's an academic publisher, but you should be able to find it in your better class of books and on Amazon and Powell's and Barnes and Noble. And that's a history of horror fiction 20th century uh, and I'm going to be self-publishing a second edition of my encyclopedia of fantastic Victoriana probably sometime late December or in January and that's going to be available through Amazon do you have a website or my Twitter is at Jess Nevins all one word and my website is jessnevins.com awesome Thank you so much for joining yeah, us and enlightening us here. about yeah. this. So awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, what we're obsessed with. Okay, Charlie Jane, what are you obsessed with right now? The second I'm obsessed with the new Buffy the Vampire Slayer comic being published by Boom Studios with writing by Jordi Belair and art by Dan Mora and David Lopez. And it's just so freaking good. It's making me remember why I loved Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the first place. It's a new version of Buffy where it picks up with her brand new in high school, meeting Willow and Xander for the first time. It's an alternate version of that story, which doesn't kind of get bogged down in the continuity of the 
original TV show and all those like sequel comics that Dark Horse published. And it's just everything is updated. Like they all have smartphones, but also the politics are just a lot zippier and like Willow is is queer from like day one. She has a girlfriend in the first issue and she's already kind of interested in Wicca. It feels like their evolution has been jumpstarted. Xander is actually a kind of a more interesting character and you know Spike is around and he's a little bit more cool and interesting and Anya has like a whole kind of cool thing going on. It just feels like all the stuff that I remember loving about the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer but just kind of updated and souped up. And Jordi Belair previously had written an amazing horror comic called Redlands, which is about like a matriarchal community in the Florida swamp where basically sinister things are going down and it's kind of like scary, dark horror. And I loved that, but her Buffy comic is even better. It's just it's just giving me so much life. What are you obsessed with, Annalie? So I'm obsessed with two historical dramas that are now available for streaming. One is Gentleman Jack, yeah. which is created by Sally Wainwright. And it's a miniseries that was, it's a BBC HBO co-production, but it's it feels very BBC. And it's basically the retelling of the life of Anne Lister, who was uh, living in the early 19th century, and she was an open lesbian. She managed her own estate, and she kept voluminous diaries, which she partially wrote in code. And the sections in code, I think about a sixth of them were in code, and the coded sections were all about her lesbian conquests. And so the... The thing I love about the miniseries is that, of course, it has hot lesbian action, and it's all about the main character, whose name is Anne, but she's nicknamed Gentleman Jack. Uh, Anne is trying to basically find a wife, and she's wooing this young woman. But it's also very Jane Austen in that it's also about money and who has money and how partly Anne Lister is able to be in this position because she's wealthy and she's kind of a you know member of the titled aristocracy. But also, if she's going to make a match, she has to think about this potential wife's income. And so it's this amazing sort of alternate reality Jane Austen story where she's trying to figure out her household finances and enter into like a deal with some local coal miners to um, extricate coal on her property, but also hot lesbian romance. It is just, if you love hair and hat dramas and stories about people struggling with money and also love, it's great. Who doesn't? And the acting is fantastic. The other thing I'm really obsessed with is the series Dickinson, which as far as I can tell is the greatest thing on Apple TV. It is one of the greatest things on television generally. In general, yeah. Yeah. So this was one of the many shows that Apple TV kind of dumped when they said, you know, look, we have a bunch of content. And you might have missed it. You might have blinked and missed it. It's retelling the story of the mid-19th century poet Emily Dickinson from Amherst, Massachusetts. You probably were forced to read Emily Dickinson's poems in school, but I bet you never thought about the fact that she was probably also a raging homo who (laughs) was fighting against the strictures of her time. And this is a series that is... It's very anachronistic in that it's full of modern music. I should say that makes it sound like it's full of modern classical music. It's full of contemporary hip-hop and rock. 
And the characters all talk like modern teenagers. So when Emily Dickinson's mom tells her she has to go fetch the water because her brother, you know, doesn't have to do that. It's a girl's chore to fetch water. She's like, "Ah, this is some bullshit. And (laughs) it's just amazing and delightful. And for someone who grew up like I did as like a budding English major loving poetry and being kind of goth, it's amazing. It's Emily Dickinson as lesbian goth. She gets to like hang out with death in her fantasies. And so it has a huge element of Emily Dickinson just having fantasies that turn into poems. And finally, I will just say that um, it also makes you really appreciate Emily Dickinson's poetry in a new light. Each episode is structured around a poem and we hear her writing the poem in her head and we see what events in her life might have inspired the poem. And it really, it, it sent me back to reading Emily Dickinson. I pulled out my collected poems of Emily Dickinson and started rereading them and it really did give me a new perspective on her work. So yay, good job, Apple TV. Awesome. And so definitely check that one out. It is unbelievably cool. Created by um, Elena Smith and um, also Emily Dickinson is played by Haley Steinfeld, who's amazing. She She is awesome. She really knocks it out of the park. All right. So that's what we're obsessed with. Thank you so much for listening. You have been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. Or have you? I'm not really sure. I'm I'm super bad at these outros. Um, You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Libsyn and anywhere where fine podcasts are streaming. Please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps people find us. We have a Patreon, which you can find under Our Opinions Are Correct at Patreon. Um, We really appreciate your support. It's what helps us pay to produce this show and to get coffee when we're recording. And you can follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. You can find us on the web. Have you heard of the web? The web. OurOpinionsAreCorrect.com. Apparently, the web is still a thing. Apparently. So thank you so much for listening. And we Thanks to our amazing producer, Veronica Simonetti at Women's Audio Mission, who without whom none of this would be even remotely possible. It's really true. And thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. And thanks again for listening. You are the best. Bye. Bye. Bye.